This is not the media. This is hell. A little bit of uh, breaking news there for you, Alex. Somebody is going into our foyer at approximately four in the morning and drinking Dr. Pepper and eating an individual size bag of Flamin' Hot Cheetos. So they had their Dr. Pepper, they ate their chips, I left the bag and can in the foyer because I was quarantining it, as I assumed it was covered in COVID. The next day, that person pushed the bag and the can back up against the door that is the entry into the foyer. So for the second day in a row, I knocked over the Dr. Pepper can and the bag of Cheetos. So I don't know who this person is who is using our foyer as their snack station, but please quit setting up these traps so I continually and constantly knock over your Dr. Pepper can and your bag of flaming Hot Cheetos. Also, I broke a cabinet door off of our kitchen cabinet last night, so lots of breaking news at my house. Anyway... What do you call it when a nation's sovereignty is ignored, the laws upon which it was founded are violated, and its citizens are compelled through promises of work and wealth to sign illegal contracts, contracts that instead of giving them a job in riches, puts them into debt with their new employer, a debt from which they seemingly can never pay off? What would you call that? A foreign occupation? Maybe colonialism? How about indentured servitude? Or is it simply the business model of... Uber, according to interviews with 80 Uber drivers in developing economies like Kenya and elsewhere, Uber enters the market without considering local labor or wage laws. For those who have difficulty finding stable work and in nations with poor mass transit systems, Uber can be a godsend. It was in Kenya, offering riders a cheap and more comfortable transportation option than the network of overworked and overcrowded vans the government supports to shuttle people from place to place. It gave jobs that earned good money for its drivers. Uber even supplied the cars through their own loan and financing operations that made cars more accessible to Kenyans. Problem is, when alternative ride-sharing apps emerged, Undercutting Uber's prices, Uber also slashed prices, which cut deeply into drivers' wages. Then, seeing the competition was using smaller cars, Uber lifted the requirement to have larger cars. However, the earlier Uber drivers were now stuck with the bigger cars that Uber required when they were in on the ground floor of Uber in Kenya. Bigger cars they did not need, which had far more debt than the drivers could ever overcome. Some found it more profitable to sell fruit and vegetables from their cars than actually be a ride-sharing vehicle. Others became homeless. We'll learn about what happens when Uber comes to a developing economy when we have the return of multi-award-winning journalist Amanda Sperber, who wrote the NBC News article, Uber made big promises in Kenya, drivers say it's ruined their lives, which was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center. Amanda's work has prompted changes to U.S. military policy, high-profile reports from international human rights organizations, and open congressional letters to the military. Since Amanda started reporting on U.S. airstrikes in Somalia, the military admitted its first civilian casualties since it was since it began carrying out strikes in 2007. This is Amanda's second appearance here on This Is Hell. She was on back in February of 2009 when she talked to us about her article that appeared at The Nation inside the secretive U.S. air campaign in Somalia. You can follow Amanda on Twitter at, hmm, Hyperbole. That's... Hyperbole? Like it's, hyperbole. It's hyperbole with an S after the H-Y. Hyperbole. Find out more about Amanda at amandasperber.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from Hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? And uh, we got some doozies. Oh, my God. Dude. When the worst thing that has happened to you in 2020 ends as a plural, you got a really good shot 
It's sadly winning this week's question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of your you for your support. We don't take any grants. We don't take any ad money, advertising money. We don't have any commercials. So you're it. You're our bottom line. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment of truth, Jeff juggles delusions about democracy. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, this week's question from hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. On each and every one of our final 12 episodes of 2020, we are revealing another title to make our annual list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in interviews with their authors this year. Today's book, the eighth to make our list of favorite titles of 2020, is Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula by Lala Khalili. The ports of the Arabian Peninsula have been exporting the region's natural wealth of resources for outsiders, to outsiders, ever since oil was discovered just prior to World War II in the region. The ports are built, the harbors dredged, changing the natural landscape permanently, and then roads and railways are laid so resources can be extracted from the hinterland and brought directly to the port to be sent far away to benefit others. Even the workers are not from the area, with Europeans dominating management positions and East Asian migrants making up most of the more manual labor. The entire project, whether it's the British Empire or U.S. corporations or now the current factory of the world, China, their ports all exploit the land and the people in a process that appears to be nothing more than the continuation and the legacy of colonialism. We learned that harbors, ports, and ship workers, what they can tell us about the history of colonialism and how it works when we had the honor of interviewing Lale back in May. An interview you can find right now at thisishell.com. Again, the eighth book to make our list of 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020 is Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Amer- Arabian Peninsula by Lale Khalili. On Tuesday's show, we mentioned how we got an email a couple weeks ago suggesting a guest whose work had appeared at Mint Press. We asked you what you thought about Mint Press, and we heard both skepticism, but also admiration for some of the work they post and share. Then we talked with Telesur English's and Brazil Wire's Brian Muir, and he voiced his skepticism, as he always does, of the New York Times and The Guardian. Alex even mentioned his surprise to be saying that we are having a guest on today whose work actually appeared at NBC News, although it is through the Pulitzer Center. So we asked the bigger question of to what extent do you consider the source, the outlet of which an article is published in determining whether a work is worthwhile or not? Do you judge the work on its own merit or do you also take into consideration where the work appeared? Adam wrote back saying the other day on the show you asked... Do uh, You asked if I consider the source or not, and I do. I consider the source for sure. If it's in Breitbart, I'll dismiss it out of hand, but there's a lot of outlets out there with quality ranging from terrible to, to terrific. Take the New York Times, for instance, home for one Thomas Friedman for nearly 40 effing years, cheerleader for neoliberals and propagandists for American empire. At the same time, every now and again, there's a Chris Hedges in their midst on their pages, or a Kianga Yamada Taylor, or a guest op-ed from a Jane McElvey, or a Rick Perlstein, all past guests on This Is Hell. I thought it was a great show you had with Abram Lusgarten a couple months ago for his New York Times Magazine piece on climate-induced mass migration. And despite his crappy platform, I don't think it delegitimized the subject matter to have him on to talk about it. It's only natural to make assumptions about content based on the publisher, but those assumptions will at times be wrong Signed, Adam. Thanks, Adam. The uh, difficulty for me is that of judging a book by its cover, because after working for years in a bookstore, guess what I can do really well? Judge a book by its cover. The problem is when that judgment is wrong, and it can be very, very, very wrong. Suddenly, we're not having a guest on because their book was published by a major corporate publisher, which is crushing free speech. And who knows? Maybe that's what the book is about. And suddenly, we're not engaging with someone who is actually inside the house, who has a rare and unique perspective. One last thing the only source any listener has come up with that we can completely dismiss is Breitbart. 
Which makes me wonder if they have ever, ever published anything we would ever want to discuss on our show on air. My guess is no, but you figure they've shared and created so much content. There's got to be something they've done that's worth discussing, right? Maybe? I don't know. See, we told you. This is hell coming up. What happens when Uber lands in a developing economy? We'll also have Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff juggles delusions about democracy. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what was the worst thing to happen to you in 2020? Please leave your answer at our Facebook page or email it to us or tweet it to us, and we will read your response on air. But we have to have your response in by the end of today's show when we are announcing the winner of whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Live from the nightmare of want, this is Hell Uber came to Kenya and it was a big hit with locals who needed both better and cheaper transportation options and paying jobs that offered flexibility and the potential for expansion and even, dare I say, wealth. Of course, that's not how it worked out. Instead, drivers had debt piled upon them. Competition pushed wages down, leading some drivers to even become homeless. Returning to This Is Hell to tell us what happens when Uber does come to town, journalist Amanda Sperber wrote the NBC News article, Uber made big promises in Kenya. Drivers say it ruined their lives. The story was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, glad to be here. I should also note that um, the main supporter of uh, the article was actually listed on the bottom of the article. It's a journalist for Transparency uh, and 100 Reporters. Uh, Pulitzer made it to the top, but um, in terms of funding and career support, those are the, the main cheeses, and, and they should they should be noted as such. Right. The, the pr- um, report, again, was produced in collaboration with 100 Reporters, a nonprofit investigative news organization and journalists for Transparency, an initiative hosted by the International Anti-Corruption Conference Series and Transparency International. You can follow Amanda on Twitter at <laughs> hyperbole with an S after the Y. So it's hyperbole, I guess. Find out more about Amanda at Amanda Sperber. Dot com. You write that at first work as an Uber driver seemed to offer Harrison Munala everything he'd hoped for when he moved from a town in the western part of Kenya to its capital, Nairobi. Uber seemed like the answer to Munala after he had spent nearly 15 years of informal employment as a house cleaner and a school bus driver. Many of the energetic hustlers with middle class aspirations who flocked to East Africa's economic hub, they thought so too. Did Uber mean stability to Kenyans, because ride-sharing is part of the gig economy, which has been criticized for being precarious. So did prospective Uber drivers in Kenya see working for Uber as stable work? And what does that reveal to you about the situation of work in Kenya? Sure. Um, so Kenya's economy um, is, is um, you know, almost entirely based on quote-unquote informal work, which is you know, it's already kind of a uh, complete gig economy um, in the sense that people um, have very little protections. Um, they'll take kind of whatever job they can get. Um, most of those jobs are, are low paying and the, the power dynamic uh, completely favors the employer. So um, the, the, the worker has uh, very little say or very little kind of leverage in the, in the relationship. You write that four years after Harrison Munella got involved in uh, Uber, remembering those dreams, makes Harrison Munella grimace. Uber slashed its fares and Munala's income. It also introduced new categories of cars, allowing smaller cars, and more people started to take the smaller cars because they were cheaper and more fuel efficient. That adversely affected the drivers who were already saddled with the larger four-door cars with more powerful engines that Uber had previously required. So the people who got in on the bottom floor of Uber were the ones who were getting screwed more by than the ones who would get in later on. Why didn't Uber originally allow the smaller cars? Why only allow larger cars when they introduced Uber to Kenya? Or or are these decisions not within Uber's power, but the states, the Kenyan governments? Oh, goodness. I don't know about why 
why certain cars were allowed and other cars weren't. I assume it was some, I, I couldn't say whether it was uh, a mandate from the Kenya, like a regulation on the Kenyan government side, or if it was just that they thought that this was uh, the threshold in terms of safety and, um, uh, you know, what would work for customers. Were those cars, though, were they indicative of the average car within uh, Kenya, or were they being asked to buy cars that were better these were, than that? These were, nicer, these were nicer cars than most Kenyans would have, definitely. Um, so a lot of drivers uh, either um, saw this as an opportunity to sell their, their older, kind of bankier cars and take out loans in order to get cars that would... Um, uh, make them comply with that would ha- that would comply with Uber's requirements, or they would take out loans from banks, or they would um, drive a quote unquote partner's car, which is um, uh, a car that a not, like a, a car that complies with Uber standards that's owned by someone else, um, and maybe that person is treating Uber as a side hustle. Then the driver would drive the car and give the partner a cut of the earnings. You also mentioned about how Harrison Munala, he had this plan of where he would expand his operation. His plan was that he would make so much money that he would not only be able to afford his car, but then in the future he might be able to have even a, a fleet of cars. How common was... Exactly. So so the most drivers who didn't own their cars outright had this vision of kind of building, going, you know... Um, growing up the chain and becoming um, p- partners themselves or opening taxi businesses. Um, and the problem with that, uh, among other things, is that you can only have so many taxi businesses. Um, and then, you know, I think even in the best of circumstances, you, you could, uh, like, I think even if all of these guys were to succeed, they would have still hit a ceiling because not everyone can start a taxi business. Um, but they did not even, you know, get that didn't even manage to become a problem because, you know, people couldn't get out of debt, um, which I think is also, you know, speaks to one of the larger economic problems in Kenya uh, and, you know, in, in many other countries, um, which is just that, like, there's so few job opportunities and um, there's so few well-paid jobs. Uh, so, like, so many people are, are looking to kind of be part of the – so many people are looking at jobs like taxi drivers or plumbers, um, and there's just way too much competition. So you also point out that Munala tells his story sitting on the roof of his former apartment building, looking over a Kwangwar, I guess, uh, a low-income – Okay, uh, low-income neighborhood of tin-and-mud houses uh, sandwiched between verdant former – colonial enclaves in West Nairobi. How visible is that inequality? How obvious is it? And more importantly, did Uber in any way play a role in sustaining that inequality? Um, The inequality is extremely visible in Kenya um, and in Nairobi. It's quite quite unbearable to to see Um, the, the dichotomy between kind of the upper middle class areas where um, a lot of wealthy expat lives, expats live, excuse me, people that work for the United Nations or big humanitarian organizations. Um, and then, you know, and some Kenyan politicians or high level business people. And then the vast majority of working Kenyans who live in kind of informal set of settlements that are, are not serviced and, um, kind of just under under support like deeply under supported is it's, it's quite a the, the difference is quite astonishing um and i think because of that um when uber first came and it was paying reasonably um you know it it sort of exploited that that inequality because there were a certain number of people that had already heard of uber because they're they're well tra- traveled um, they could afford Uber, and that then helped the small section of drivers who started with Uber make a good living. And so that then it was going, you know, swimmingly. Um, I and and sort of how it was, you know, it was kind of following what its promise. But then things, you know, quickly started to spiral as prices got cut, 
and more and more drivers join the platform and um, other uh, car uh, and other um, rideshare apps were launched and stuff like that. And you write that to qualify for the Uber sticker, many Kenyan drivers borrowed heavily to lease cars, sometimes through programs facilitated and promoted by Uber, sometimes through other companies. Can Uber drivers be in debt to Uber before they ever drive their car? No, they cannot. So what Uber drivers, I mean, they can be in debt to a bank before they ever drive their car, um, for sure. Um, if they can get a loan out or lease a car independently and then bring that to Uber. Um, but the Uber programs would say that you have to have, I don't know offhand what, what, the, what the qualifications are exactly, but they would say something like if you have 500 rides and a, you know, a rating of 4.8, um, they will, you'll get like a little update um, from Uber saying that you can qualify for um, for a loan in which Uber will kind of act as the, the guarantor. So you're not in debt to Uber. Uber is facilitating the loan for you to get a yeah, loan. Yeah, so, so, so there are different ways you would go about it. Uber does not facilitate all the loans, but Uber has programs in which it will act as a guarantor and say, um, you know, like, congratulations, you've achieved you 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 have 500 rides over a 4.8 rating or again whatever I don't know what the exact uh, qualifications are. Um, if you go to City and Bank um, with the with these with these figures, you'll you qualify for for a loan to get your own car or buy a second car. And you write, uh, when Uber started operating in Kenya in June 2015, it built on the remains of an empire whose structure had changed little despite independence. Kenya is the former British base in Africa, and the colonial economy based on extraction relied on masses of workers who profited little. As you were saying earlier today, these laborers, classified as informally employed, account for 80% of Kenya's population, according to a 2016 World Bank report. Many work in construction, clean houses, or sell secondhand clothes. Moving from sector to sector, rarely making ends meet young women walk through rich neighborhoods offering to work as maids does the kenyan government then still act in ways that are similar to still being the subject of a colonial power are they the colonial power i I mean that's what a lot of analysts and experts kenyan analysts and experts um quite convincingly argue is that essentially uh the british withdrew from kenya um quite quickly uh, and and the government, the Kenyan government that took over, um, basically just kind of took took over the same role now with the state kind of serving as basically a similar version of the colonial administration. So the state does not really su- provide support in concert with with Kenyans as much as it rules over them, um, and that and that difference then creates a dynamic where, you know, you're kind of struggling to, to break through economically um, and, and you don't really have any, you don't have much support, if any, from, from the, the state. From the state. And you write how Kenya's government paid little attention to Uber's entry into the market. Private taxis, however, balked, saying Uber was hurting their business in a few instances. In 2015 and 2016, Ubers were burned and drivers were harassed. Over time, however, as customers became accustomed to the convenience and lower prices, drivers lost their regular clients and had to move onto the app to stay in business. Uber grew its ranks by approaching taxis at airports and mall parking lots. So were taxis any better for drivers than Uber? Did, did, could you get a better job as a taxi driver than you could as an Uber so, driver? It's difficult. So it's honestly difficult to say. I think that the taxi industry before Uber was very, it was, ca- it was quite casual. There were definitely some drivers that were doing better um, than they were there. I, so I guess I'd say a few things. One, like, there was still a lot. It is this is not. It is not to suggest that like the taxi industry before Uber was uh, a well-oiled machine. Um, I think my understanding is that there were kind of a lot of private cartels and a lot of kind of 
area disputes and 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 quite a lot of people struggling. That said, you there were people who were able to make a living um, in a way that I think they were not they are not able to now because of Uber. Was uh, were the taxis any better or worse than Uber for customers for riders for transit within Nairobi? I think it would depend on the customer. Like uh, my feeling and part of what prompted me doing this story was that I've been in Kenya since before Uber came to the market and I, I take taxis almost everywhere. Um, and so I was able to, per, you know, my, my taxi driver, people would often have drivers that they would call. He's not my taxi driver. Um, but people would often have drivers that they would regularly call to kind of pick them up places. Um, and my, one of my, you know, most of my regular taxi drivers, like if I was at a, a meeting and I needed to go to another meeting, I would, I would call this guy and I would say, I think I'm leaving in about 20 minutes. Can you come? Um, you know, he might come in 10 minutes. He might come in 40. Um, and then we'd kind of sit and chat and go to the next place. Um, his car, I guess, probably was, wasn't as nice. Um, and you know, the payment system was much more informal. Like I might pay him, you know, for a week up front, or I might, there would be plenty of times where I would owe him money. Um, and that was kind of the general dynamic. Um, and then, uh, when Uber came, William, you know, and taxi drivers, like the, the main guy that I worked with, William got, uh, pushed out of business and had to get on the app and the dynamic really changed. And you could kind of sense also, that the drivers were were on the back foot and the the prices were so much cheaper um, that it, that it just started to seem ludicrous because you know you I would go from paying eight dollars for for a taxi ride from point A to point B to paying three. So how much did Uber transform Kenyan transit in only a few short years? Um, I would say pretty dynamically, um, or I, I guess maybe I would say, I don't know, I, I would say in the urban centers, it has quite drastically transformed Kenyan transit. I don't know how much, I you know, huge swaths of Kenya is are not. I The research I conducted was in Nairobi and Mombasa, um, which is where there's massive informal economies. Uh, but many Kenyans are, are farmers and, and have, and don't own cars, you know, so it's hard to say. It's hard to speak to the whole country, um, but in terms of kind of Kenyan's major urban areas, it's, it's had a drastic impact on it. Um, and any driver I spoke to did not say that it was that it was for the better. You mentioned how other alternative digital ride sharing apps created competition for Uber, which led Uber to cutting their prices and want, and allowing smaller cars in order to compete with these other applica- other apps. And that hurt the wages, clearly, of the drivers and hurt those who had the larger cars originally. So uh, how much worse are these other ride-sharing apps for other drivers? It would seem like if Uber's bad, is Uber the best of the ride-sharing apps for drivers so in Kenya? All drivers... No, so all drivers will say Uber is the worst one, um, but the most people use Uber because it's the cheapest. Um, so they then um, have no choice but uh, but but to be on the app. But so I've heard that um, I've heard that other um, hello. I'm here. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, I've heard uh, from drivers that there are other apps that are better, either they pay a bit better or um, like they take less of the commission or the pay is higher um, or the drivers just feel a bit more like they're on the same, um, they're a little bit more on the same page as the people running the app as opposed to feeling like indentured servants. But the majority of Kenyans, the majority of people in Kenya use Uber because it's cheapest. Um, and it's the most well-known. 
I'm going to ask you about indentured service and servants in just a little bit, but first I wanted to ask you, because uh, you write how Suyanka Lempa, a lawyer and human rights advocate with the Katiba Institute, an organization that promotes understanding of the Kenyan constitution, said the Uber contract with their drivers appears to con- conflict with the right to equality of arms. For example, Lempa said, Uber can void contracts at will and without notice. The power runs afoul of the constitution, which provides the weaker party in such an agreement with the right to challenge the action promptly under terms that our Lempa said procedurally fair. Does the Uber contract actually violate the Kenyan constitution? And is that a common practice for Uber to enter countries and ignore local hiring laws? So that is what um, Lempa would advance, is that according to the Kenyan constitution, um, Uber is violating it. Um, I I am not a constitutional lawyer um, in any country. Um, so, but you know, my understanding is that there's a, a valid argument. The Katiba Institute is a super respect, well-respected institution. Um, so, you know, I think you could say that there are extremely educated, well-respected attorneys in Kenya making that argument. Um, you know, I, I'm not a judge uh, and I'm not an expert in constitutional law in Kenya, so I, I couldn't weigh in, but... Um, yeah, but I mean, Katiba is, you know, a premier institution in Kenya, and and that was their assessment. So, do you think that Kenya is just an example of how vulnerable a developing economy can be to a company like Uber? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think every um, economy. I, I assume my assumption would be that there are probably some similarities and some differences in, in each place. You know, like I think Kenya has kind of a unique connection um, to its colonial roots because it was the seat of the British Empire and it's still kind of treated as a jumping off point for uh, uh, internationals in in East Africa. So I think it, um, and I think a lot of those kind of dynamics of kind of keeping Kenya as a like a pleasant place for Westerners uh, kind of helped Uber really take off there. you know, and I, and that was part of the, the those were part of my findings in this report. But I think that um, some of the problems in terms of massive unemployment, um, lack of regulations, uh, lack of education, um, you, I mean, those problems I think are, are certainly um, could like the the general model of exploitation I think could manifest itself in different ways in different places. Um, and definitely I've heard uh, since uh, the article came out that there are very similar problems in South Africa and Nigeria, which are Uber's other biggest markets, uh, Uber's other biggest markets on the continent. And that's what I found really fascinating about your writing is how it reveals the true business model of Uber. And you write, the company is not built to make money off rides. You then cite Huber Haran, a transportation expert, alleging in a 2019 article in the public policy journal American Affairs that it is built, quote, to eliminate all meaningful competition and then profit from this quasi-monopoly power. You add, she also said that meant attracting drivers and cutting costs and unsustainable structure for workers. Is the goal then for Uber to take over, to replace, to be a substitute for public transportation and to be in and of itself a market's dominant transit system? Is that their business model? So, again, I, I do not, you know, I, as a journalist, I'm, I'm not comfortable saying Uber told me this was their business model. Okay, I should but, say then, uh, what is, is it, as it appears, I should say. Uh, what Basically, what I worked out uh, was that when I was reporting on the story and talking to um, people that former Uber corporate staffers in the States and people that had worked in the Kenya office, um, most of these people wanted to stay anonymous, uh, basically, but one of the kind of defenses they would employ early on um, would be to say that, uh, well, Uber is not really turning a profit in Kenya either. So I would say you know, drivers aren't making money, they're struggling, and they would not deny that, but they would just sort of kind of defer to the fact that Uber itself um, is not um, drowning in, in money in Kenya, apparently. So, And at first, I found that I kind of accepted that, though I thought it was a bit strange. Um, but then I, I started to wonder a bit more about, like, 
so then why is this company here if they're not making any money? Um, and then I realized what they're, what they're benefiting from is um, establishing their, their, uh, their stocking up dry, drivers and riders. Um, and, and they're establishing like a massive market presence in a, um, in a frontier economy, um, in a country with over 44 million people where the vast majority of them are quite young. Um, and without a, uh, super efficient, um, well-regulated public transport system. So that kind of then means that Uber becomes not a, you know, a taxi service, which is a kind of a, a treat um, or something for the elite, um, but, but part of kind of public, an option for, for public transport. And you talk- um, and that obviously, and that obviously gra- gra- drastically would um, impact its valuation. Right. You uh, talk about the real metric being the number of trips as opposed to revenue or profits instead of revenue. Exactly. Or pro- and so why the number of why the number of trips? How does that impact? So I would assume investors trips. and shareholders, I would assume that's what they're looking for. Exactly. So the number of trips then kind of indi- indicates um, how much they've saturated the market. And Uber would then say, well, we can't pay if you then kind of raise this issue to Uber to say to that, they would then say something like kind of give a a bland statement, like our drivers are the most important part of this process and we have to pay them well because otherwise they won't drive for us. But that's not entirely true. A, because the drivers are in debt um, and B, because um, there's not really any other options. And while, yes, you could say something like, well, the drivers should figure out something else to do, like maybe they can uh, sell clothes or, you know, become plumbers or do something else that's kind of an equivalent informal job. Um, You know, you don't really have time to think clearly because you're in debt and your family needs to eat tomorrow. Um, And if you leave the house in the morning and are able to get a few to get a few trips, your family can eat tomorrow. Whereas if you spend the day trying to, you know, get, learn how to be a plumber, your family will not eat tomorrow. So you don't really have time to like strategically pivot. Um, And most of these guys are also super happy to, you know, do three jobs or five jobs. It's just that the options aren't there because there's way more, there's way more supply than than demand. And you write how estimating a car's cost at a fraction of its actual price gave a false picture of potential earnings amounting to what you quote a former operations manager for Uber called a disingenuous tactic to artificially justify an unsustainable price. However, you add... That specific model was not used, but the operations manager contended that it was an example of the company's practice of cavalierly misleading itself about the real price of operations. Why mislead yourselves? Why were they misleading themselves? So uh, Alyssa Orlando, who was the the former operations manager in East Africa, um, uh, very bravely spoke on the record about how her experience in the office was that... um, people were not kind of stuck on uh, fairly, uh, I guess fairly is the wrong word, accurately pricing the the costs for drivers, which then um, impacted the whole pricing model um, and would negatively impact the drivers. And her, you know, her, this example that she gave that they were vastly like grossly underestimating the cost of the cars was, because she was saying that um, her, I believe, I believe it was her supervisor or a colleague of hers had seen a car advertisement in, you know, a fl- on a flyer on the floor saying that a, a car cost X, Y, Z. And that guy had told her to put that, to treat that as the base car cost for drivers. And that was kind of an outlier and it had just been something that he'd seen randomly on the floor. And Alyssa had to push back really hard and say, like, no, this isn't um, – that, that's not an accurate premise of, of the upfront cost for drivers. Um, and she sort of – she indicated that that was kind of a common theme at the office, that people were, were underestimating the drivers' upfront costs um, 
whether that be fuel, the cost of the car, insurance, wear and tear on the car, et cetera. Uh, what impact did Uber have on the overall economy in Kenya? I mean, that I, I, that I couldn't say. I, I don't know if it's, I mean, I think Uber would probably argue that more people have jobs because of Uber. Um, what I would probably argue is that more people are kind of spiral, not spiraling, are kind of running on the endless, uh, what, I forget what you call it. More people are kind of running on the endless, like, rat wheel because of Uber, because essentially they're in debt and they're, um, they're driving to make money for the next day, and then they're driving to make money for the next day. We have been speaking with journalist Amanda Sperber, who wrote the NBC News article, Uber Made Big Promises in Kenya. Drivers say it's, uh, sorry, drivers say it's ruined their lives. This report was published and produced in collaboration with 100 Reporters, a nonprofit investigative news organization and journalists for Transparency, an initiative hosted by the International Anti-Corruption Conference Series and Transparency International. You can follow Amanda on Twitter at HYSperbally. How about that? HYSperbally. Find out more about Amanda at AmandaSperber.com. And again, thanks to listener Jack B for suggesting this work to be featured here on This Is Hell. One last question for you, Amanda, and as we do with all of our guests. Final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, as price cuts left Nairobi driver Harrison Munala, working harder and harder just to tread water, he found himself trapped. By the end of this time with of his time with Uber, around March of this year, he would begin driving early in the morning to earn enough so his family could buy breakfast. How often did you hear from Uber drivers in Kenya that they felt trapped? And more importantly, because this this almost sounds like a kind of indentured servitude, but instead of getting a trip to Virginia, you get a car. Or is is this better understood as Uber being colonialism? Is, colonial, is Uber colonialism or indentured servitude, or do either of those terms actually fit? Uh, I think it's, it's both, I guess. Um, I mean, I don't know what... Uh, I, yeah, I, I guess I think it's both. I think it's... Um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of followed the same colonial mo- model that many multinational corporations have have built on in Kenya since colonialism. Um, and I think that you could call it indentured servitude insofar as uh, the drivers are, um, you know, have have the drivers are are working to pay off debt and have no power in the relationship. Amanda, thank you so much for being back on our show again. You can hear our interview from February of 2019 with Amanda at our website by going to thisishell.com and clicking on and searching on Sperber. That's when we talked to her about her Nation article, Inside the Secret of U.S. Air Campaign in Somalia, which is still a fascinating listen. Thanks so much for being back on the show, Amanda, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye. Take care. The rest of your weekend? Where the hell did that come from? I guess I was doing the show on Saturday mornings for far too long. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help out our horrible, horrible business model, become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time every Friday morning. This week on Patreon, we are continuing our ongoing series of playing interviews we did shortly after Barack Obama became president. To remember what people were saying and thinking the last time a member of the Democratic Party became president of the United States. And this week we are sharing our Valentine's Day 2009 talk with the late, great, and oh so cranky William Bloom, author of such patriotic titles as... Killing Hope, U.S. Military and CIA Interventions Since World War II, Rogue State, A Guide to the World's Only Superpower, and America's Deadliest Export, 
democracy. William had just posted the counterpunch story, Obama and the Empire, which starts, I've said all along that whatever good changes might occur in regard to non-foreign policy issues, such as what's already taken place concerning the environment and abortion, the Obama administration will not produce any significantly worthwhile change in U.S. foreign policy. Little done in this area will reduce the level of misery that the American empire regularly brings down upon humanity, and to the extent that Barack Obama is willing to clearly reveal that he believes what he believes about every, anything controversial, he appears to believe in the empire. And just want to point out right there how he had done so much for the environment and abortion within his first month in office, and then abortion rights diminished throughout his eight years in office, and the environment had all sorts of issues because Obama was catering to extractive industries and their deep water drilling. Yeah, so that didn't, even those parts weren't working out. So we'll be reminding you how not everyone had the same amount of hope for an Obama presidency, and the people who did not have as much hope turned out to be correct, which is something that those who have blind faith in Joe Biden should be remembering right around now. Speaking of which, during my monologue tomorrow, remember all those Democrats who could not wrap their minds around how Trump supporters believe everything and anything Trump says and take it as gospel and supports everything he does because he's Trump and that was good enough for them? Remember that? How disgusted Democrats were? Well, the Biden administration hasn't even started yet, and there's apparently a contingent, a very large contingent of Uncle Joe's supporters who have become rubber stamps or echo chambers or fanatics or whatever you want to call them for Biden. Whatever he says and does is good enough for them and should not ever be questioned. If it is, you are either a Republican or a Russian or a Republican Russian troll. But you can only hear our 2009 conversation with William Bloom on how Obama would continue the imperial ambitions of the United States and my blah, blah, blah about Biden supporters acting exactly like Trumpers. By subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff Jiggles Delusions About Democracy, producing this week's show, or today's show, is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Alex, do you have more answers to this week's question? Yeah, what was the worst thing that happened in 2020? Lisa MP says, flunking out of grad school, losing my job, becoming obsolete except for my remaining value as a parent. Oh, Lisa, you're a great parent and sad about grad school. And then uh, via Twitter, DM, email, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I signed a contract with Neuralink to let them use my brain as a test subject in exchange for increased wit, poignance, and overall genius, and still, still, still can't win the question from hell <laughs> uh, via flying needle. Uh, what's the worst thing that happened to me in 2020? I lost my job. What's the best thing that happened to me in 2020? <laughs> I lost my job. That's from uh, John. Uh, Adam B said, I had to quarantine and I missed my kid being born. <laughs> I didn't see that one. Uh, so these are new ones. Um, uh, okay, number one, to try and keep this short, Michael Brooks falls dead on my birthday. I found out about it the day of while I was unstable and in triage awaiting my admission into a mental ward. My being in such a safe place had to have been the only silver lining there all in all. And because things wouldn't have been going weird and bad enough already, the added touch of the fact that he and I share the same first name surely wasn't making anything less Twilight Zone-esque. Man, totally frick 2020 by now. And that was from Michael. <laughs> uh, then, uh, uh, sorry, one last one uh, from our old friend, Eatfart69. The best thing to happen to us in 2020. Uh, Eatfart69 says, signing back on to Twitter.com. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of merchandise they want from our that you can find right now at our website. This is hell.com when you click on support. Earlier on this morning's show, we announced the eighth book to be included in our list of favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell in interviews with their authors in 2020. And that book was Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula by Lele Khalili. For those of you keeping score at home, the other books that we added to the list this week were The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future by Cassie Thornton, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism by Ariella Aisha Azale, 
and Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement by Jennifer L. Holland. We will be sharing the entire list on social media shortly. I just haven't got the entire list to Alex yet, and my apologies for that. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and I know you have. Hefe on the line. How do you keep the rabble civilized while dismantling civilization? Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. It has long been my belief that the 18th century agreement to develop a democratic republic out of the 13 colonies of England in the Americas was was taken up both as a means of sharing power among landowning men and as a means of regulating the passions of the people. Two realities are clashing. There's the reality where the unwashed masses are growing in power, and the reality where the lucky and manipulative few control the resources and possibilities. We seem to have settled on calling this the democracy versus capitalism clash. And really this conflict predates capitalism. Whenever any ruling group attempts to justify its authority by magnanimously allowing those ruled to feel like they have influence, They always try to set limits on those allowed to share in governing. No women, no slaves, no poor people, no foreigners. They say, a little bit of power sharing, not too much. Those who find themselves at the top of an economic and power hierarchy are always suspicious of those anywhere else in the hierarchy. But they've often had to contend with rebellions from those elsewhere folk, and that's where the tendency toward democracy seems to come from. It's meant to be a pressure valve on the righteous anger of the oppressed masses. Make people feel like they have a stake in governing. Give them the vote. Then, when we horrible people somehow wind up in charge again, time after time, it's their own fault. Democracy is the best way the powerful have yet discovered to blame their victims. When the founders of every so-called open society anywhere seem to have pretended to believe somewhere in their heart of hearts that they were actually interested in equality and liberty, they were deluding themselves, thinking they could hold on to power without it ever colliding with the needs of others. The problem is, the powerful can't let their victims in on this little secret. So when the people show evidence of taking the bargain seriously and demand more control over their own destiny... The powerful have to come up with fantastical reasons why victims must remain victims and never presume to be equal to, let alone more capable than their masters when it comes to steering toward their collective destiny. And the more obvious it becomes that the powerful are truly against power sharing, then to maintain power their excesses must be defended ever more violently and illogically until the fantastical reasons they give for victims remaining victims and liking it become so bizarre, twisted, and eventually untenable that the victim population itself will have no choice but to become utterly delusional. That is where we are now. We can all see the ruling class fumbling awkwardly, trying to come up with ways to keep the rabble civilized, while it becomes ever more obvious that the rulers are removing the pillars of civilization piece by piece. Why are they stealing the pillars of civilization? They feel they might need them to replace the crumbling pillars of their own privilege. The rulers are in denial about how obvious it is to everyone else. They're embarrassed but they must keep believing that their crimes are going unnoticed, even as their excuses and justifications for committing them get more and more ludicrous. We can look at our computers or TVs or newspapers and find out that several companies have developed COVID-19 vaccines in record time. That's evidence of civilization. Going on 300k deaths in the USA and 1.5 million globally is counter-evidence, since many of those deaths are due to government inaction, government stupidity, and government encouragement of and incitement to stupidity. A capricious multi-billionaire testing an enormous rocket ship is evidence of civilization. 
The same guy promising to rescue children trapped in a cave and just neglecting to accomplish it, then publicly accusing those who do rescue those children of pedophilia, is counter-evidence. 300,000 people dying in the civil war in Syria is evidence of breakdown of civilized standards, although a lot of the technology used to kill them is evidence of progress, as is the millions made from the development and sale of those technologies. Some of that money was made by the man Biden wants to appoint as his Secretary of Defense, which conflict of interest seems like a step backwards, but he'd also be the first black Secretary of Defense, so behold, progress. There is a man, Patrick, who off and on for the past 12 years has constructed a fragile habitation out of discarded materials in the alley behind my apartment. He suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. Every day at arbitrary times he'll go on an hour or so long tantrum, roaring profanity at the top of his lungs. God damn mother ever, mother effing bitch, and so on. And on and on so everyone in any building on both sides of the alley can hear. As a civilized society, we have the knowledge of treatments that could help Patrick, and we even have the empty housing available so he wouldn't have to live his entire life outside. But as a barbaric society, we withhold these things because our rulers refuse, in the name of control of resources, to finance a way for Patrick to receive them. Compassionate attention to unhoused people with mental illness is just not a priority. Only mentally ill people with money can be given treatment, and only unhoused people with coherent people skills can acquire housing. The delusion of the powerful is that they can go on being powerful, and the delusion of the powerless is that they can fight power and win, or at least get away with an amount of freedom during the hustle and bustle of everyday life when the powerful are distracted, an amount of freedom that might allow them, allow us, to live meaningful, happy lives. The big delusion we are all suffering from, and even if we're not the deluded ones, we still suffer from it, is the delusion that life on earth will remain pretty much as it is now. Many of us know that is not true. Climate conditions on earth the civilized and uncivilized parts, are changing, growing increasingly inhospitable to certain kinds of animal and plant life, including human beings and their domestic crops, as well as organisms and entire biotic ecologies able to capture carbon and possibly slow or even reverse the greenhouse gassing of the atmosphere. We are suffering our own delusions of the oppressed, as well as suffering under the delusions of others who oppress us by destroying the planet. Yesterday, about 6 p.m., Patrick was delivering one of his operatic rants. Pretend the unintelligible roaring sounds I'm making are pretty much the, only the F word. Brother rocking rock, 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 brother rocker! And as his volume trickled away, he muttered, It's fucking ridiculous. That's what it is. That's what it is when people with all the money won't at least pay us to stay home and not infect each other during a pandemic. Fucking ridiculous. When that very disagreeable man, Thomas Jefferson, wrote, All men are created equal, and the Constitution implied equality for everyone before the law, it's clear there was something being kept secret, and that was this. If there's ever a time when we could all die but whoever has enough money to pay can delay and maybe avoid their doom, then the whole equality thing is off, and you all should have known we were only kidding. Rockin' ridiculous. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, good day. And this week's question from Hal is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? You got to find Jeff Dorchin's answer within the answers on our Facebook page. You replied to it, didn't you? I, you know, I got confused because I thought it was, I thought it was the same as last week's. The best thing. <laughs> That's next week. See, there's so Maybe. many time issues that you're having right now. Maybe I did answer that. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure there is one in there from you. All right, Jeffy. What? Oh, wait, Jock. Yes. I, you know, I was I was a Kenyan Uber driver. I just happened to be in Los Angeles. Oh, I see. It was horrible. I went broke. From driving Uber? 
Yes, it was awful. It was completely unsustainable. It's the worst gig ever. It's driving everybody down. And luckily, the law passed in California to protect Uber and to keep those wages down. So that worked out great. Oh, yes. So they brainwashed a bunch of idiot, idiotic Uber drivers to go along with it. I had to fight with oh God. Well, all right, I'm not going to go into it. I have before in the past. Anyway. <laughs> all right, Jeffy. Stay beautiful. I'm going to do that. All right. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please share with us the rest of this week's answers to the question from Hell. Uh, that is the only F5 this. Uh, that's it. Okay, so what was Adam B's again? Because I just wanted to share that He missed that the birth of his child. <laughs> uh, also, and, like, uh, Facebook's uh, s- sort comments by uh, newest is really difficult to uh, go through because it actually doesn't really do that. No. It has things that were replied to, but uh, the person who wrote, let me just uh, control F, crack. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we caught it because it's hard no, to get it every was. single one. Oh, did we reach Jeremiah Payne? Yes, yeah. Even with all the death and chaos I've experienced this year, it's still going to be a toss-up between getting addicted to crack and falling in love. <laughs> yeah, I think Richard read that on uh, yesterday's yeah, show. That was my favorite. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you told me which one was your favorite because that was really good because that's, again... More than one horrible thing that happened. We, got, we to you. do have a grand slam on this one, though. I Tom think. said, uh, "Let me tell you my favorites." Tom saying, "I was targeted for murder." That's, I mean, wow. Jeremiah saying, "Even with all the death and chaos I've experienced this year, it's still got to be as Alex was just saying a toss-up between getting addicted to crack and falling in love." Laura saying, "My mom died from COVID nineteen. Yeah, that sucked." Victoria saying, "I had an existential crisis and started believing in God again." That's just a great answer. Laddie saying too many online funeral memorials to choose from. Plural. Plural. So that's something. Chris saying, I died about six months ago, and get this, it wasn't even COVID-related. Implausible. But, okay, that's a great answer. But, good Lord. Kelly, you've won this week's question from hell. Kelly's answer to the question, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020, is my children's friends' suicides, as in plural. And that's just freaking awful. But lucky you, Kelly, you get to choose from whatever piece of merchandise you want at thisishell.com. When you click on support and you can get whatever you want, and we'll put it in the mail as soon as possible. And Jesus, Kelly... Good Lord. What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020 for me? A sister by a different mister entered hospice, which I did not know means you have decided to no longer treat whatever horrible life-threatening disease you have because you have just had enough. So yeah, hands down, the worst thing to happen to me was somehow someone I love dearly is entering hospice. To make it worse, we cannot visit her as we have had four or five consecutive contacts with people who have either tested positive for COVID-19, showed symptoms of coronavirus, or they themselves were in contact with someone who had tested positive for the Rona, which means there's no way we're taking any chance at bringing her some kind of deadly disease and bring it to her family, which is already dealing with deadly health issues. Worst thing for me in 2020, someone I care deeply about may not survive by the time that we feel safe enough to visit them again. And to be honest with you, I can't stop crying about it. And it's, I just got to say one other thing about this person. The only person ever, Alex, only person ever to defend Richard Daly in the same sentences telling you that they thought, Osama bin Laden was hot. <laughs> That's pretty amazing person. Alex, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020 anyway? Uh, I spent a lot of time with my family. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't feel like sharing that one on Facebook. <laughs> I guess I'm doing okay over here. Thanks to everyone for sending in your wonderfully horrible answers to this week's question from Alan Special. Thanks to those of you who went to thisishell.com overnight and clicked on support to show your support for This Is Hell. Thanks, Ginger, for supporting This Is Hell. We truly appreciate it. Remember, 
We are completely listener-supported, so without you, we got nothing. Again, thanks, Ginger, for giving to thisishell.com, going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and showing your support for completely listener-supported. This is Hell. Alex, who's on Monday's show? Okay, so I am 90 to 95% sure we'll be talking with someone from the All India Kisan Sangarsh Coordination Committee, uh, which is a pan-Indian umbrella organization of farmers uh, that are one of the main organizers of the 250 million person strike happening in India. This is nobody. Sh- this is completely predictable. What was it? 150,000 Indian farmers committed suicide a few years ago. 150,000. It's not enough to make it the headlines in the United States, but Jesus, this was completely predictable. What about anybody else next week? Yeah, Tuesday, Bram Boucher is going to be returning to the show to talk about his new book, The Truth About Nature, Environmentalism in the Era of Post-Truth Politics and Platform Capitalism. And Wednesday? And then Wednesday, we rebooked Lucy DeLapp. She'll be on to talk about her book, Feminisms, A Global History, and uh, I don't know about Thursday yet. And next Thursday will be the last show of 2020. Except our Patreon podcast on Friday, of course. Yeah, so then we're taking off two weeks. Next week, also on the show, we will be revealing the rest of the titles to make our favorite books list of 2020. And we'll be telling you what we're going to be doing here at thisishell.com over the holidays, what you will be able to hear every morning at 10 a.m. throughout the holidays. And I'm going to be doing something over the holidays on Instagram that uh, I'll be sharing with you next week, so you'll want to find that out as well. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com with Alex revealing... well, he did this week with Alex revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is moderation and antioxidants. And again, it's really just antioxidants because with moderation, you don't need the antioxidants. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including architect Shivani Shetta, who wrote the Eflux article, Housing the Poor for a Healthy Planet and Healthy Nation. Also, thanks to historian Frank M. Snowden, author of Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. That is an amazing book. I don't know if it's going to make the list, but that is an amazing Amazing book, and I really enjoyed that conversation. So go back and listen to Tuesday's show when we talked to Frank Snowden, author of Epidemics and Society. Thanks to yesterday's guest writer and editor Federico Fuentes, who posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, Why Venezuela's National Assembly Elections Matter. It's a great deep dive into what those elections last weekend were all about. And finally, thanks to today's guest journalist, Amanda Sperber, who wrote the NBC News article, Uber Made Big Promises in Kenya, Drivers say it's ruined their lives. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2009 talk with William Bloom on how President Obama would continue the imperial ambitions of the United States, as well as my issues with always Bideners or whatever you want to call those who insist Biden's above criticism. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning show. That's by turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead saying these simple words everybody's stupid my demon is on my butt Uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride